things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. I know where you dwell. It's where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I do have a few things against you, because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immoralities. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent. Or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And as we begin this second lesson to the church at Pergamos, I thought it would be timely to mention right now that we brought it up with Smyrna, how that the names of these churches also reflect something that's going on in the church and with them and what the letter is about. In Smyrna, we saw that the name meant myrrh. It came from the word of myrrh. And that myrrh was priceless. It is still highly sought after because of its fragrance and its healing properties. If you get essential oils of myrrh, it's a little pricey if you get the real true stuff. It's still sought after. But the way you get myrrh in its little crystalline form that then they use for these things, it can only happen if the tree is hurt. The tree has to be cut and it has to be bruised and it has to have something to happen to it to make a contusion so that it would seep out its sap. And then that sap dries and you collect it. And that is what has this fragrance. And that church at Smyrna was just that way. It was being persecuted. It was being hurt. The people there were going through tough times. But they were remaining faithful. So to God, that was a pure sense of smell to Him as a sacrifice. And that's what myrrh was. Here at Pergamos... We've got a different story with the name. It's two words. It's got a prefix of per and then the root word of gamos. And per means to be something that is mixed. Something that might be objectionable. Something that you wouldn't expect. Like in the word perverted. Then the actual word for marriage is gamos. And from it we have words like polygamy, bigamy, and those type of things, monogamy. So that gami is the word for marriage with a prefix to it. So what is the Lord trying to tell the church at Pergamos? It is that your some of the things going on 
is a mixture of things that was not what I expected. It is a mixed marriage, so to speak. You have theirs after the likeness of Antipas, who is faithful. And you have there some that hold after traditions like Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And so there's a mixture of people there among you. And I don't want that. You know, the idea of marriage goes all the way back to the, to the first part of man and woman. But God has used that to describe his relationship with his people. Back in the Old Testament, he started with Abraham and said, I am going to make from your loins and your seed, I am going to create those who will be my people. And he made a covenant with him. And then there was 70 people that went into Egypt from Abraham's seed. Out from Egypt came with Moses almost two million. And that's when God proposed marriage to them in Exodus chapter 19. And he says, I would like to make you to be my special people. I want you to be the ones who represent me and to be my bride. And so then when they said yes, he started laying out the marriage vows. Thou shall have no other God before me. You will make no graven images of anything else. Number three. Thou shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now I was raised by folks who my parents were good. But they taught me that that meant don't ever say the GD word. I don't know if that's what you had been taught as well. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about you are becoming my bride. And you are taking on my name. When, when you are given in marriage, the bride takes the name of the man and she becomes identified with him. And you are taking the name of the Lord your God to be His people. And you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. In other words, you're not going to shame me. I don't want you to profane me as you are walking through this wilderness. And as we even today walk through this life, we are a representative. Did you know that the church is the bride of Christ It's all the way through the New Testament. We are the bride of Christ. He is preparing now a place for his bride so that he can come back after that Old Testament covenant way and take us to be with him that where I am, there you may be also. Did you know we took his name? Acts chapter 11 says they were first called Christians at Antioch. Christians, the name of the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ and we are to glorify Him and exalt Him and not take the name of Him in vain. And so there was a spiritual marriage then that that takes place. And what was happening in Pergamos is this marriage relationship. There were some who were being faithful and some who were not. Some who were hanging on to things of the world, to things of their desires. 
You know, worldliness and living like that and accepting it is enmity with God. If you look upon the board, 1 John, there it says in chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, we are exhorted to not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, wow, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, those things are not of the Father, but they are of the world. The world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God will abide forever. Then James, the brother of our Lord, wrote this in James 4.4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be friends of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And folks, that's not me saying that. This is God saying it to me. And it's something that I needed to look at. And it was like, wow. And he's referring it there as how we react to him and his authority of his word to how I am in marriage with him. Look at how he started it there in James 4.4. 4. So the imagery is plain from Genesis all the way through the end of the book of Revelation that a relationship with God is just like that marriage covenant. And that's why he places so much strict rules around it because it's a representation of his relationship with us. It's that symbolism of it. Whoever wants to be friends with this world, he says, makes himself an enemy of God. So the first step, as we started talking about last week, is to bring people out from that. To bring people out from the world and into a relationship with God so that they are not an enemy with him. That they have a covenant relationship with him. And then we instruct them how to walk in this life so that you remain that way. And that's a picture of the crux of what was going on in Pergamos then. Jesus is going to contrast for us a picture of one who was faithful to him and then those who are following after someone who was the type of way that he was that is not being faithful to him. You know, every name that is written in Scripture is important and it's there for a purpose and a reason. And the same thing is about Antipas and it was written for our learning God saw fit to record for us in this book, which will live and abide forever, a man called Antipas and his example, which is so important that it will stand for all eternity. This is factual. It is a historical record. And it begins in verse 13 when it says, I know your works. I know what's going on and I know where you live. I know where you dwell. It's where Satan's headquarters is. He's got his throne right there with you. And he says, number one, you're holding fast. That means you're keeping a tight grip. It's tough, but you're hanging on tight. Hang in there. You're doing it to my name. There we go with that relationship thing there. You're holding fast to my name. You're being faithful to me as a Christian. You are denying not daily in your walk of life my faith you know what that is that's the word of god that's being following after the way he's asked us to be because 
when he talks about faith, always think of faith as the word of God and faithful to it. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. If you look at the chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, it will tell you, by faith Noah, when he heard about the flood that was to come, moved with fear and built an ark. By faith Abel offered up a more pleasing sacrifice. Faith is hearing the word of God and then heeding the word. So when he says that you are holding fast to my faith, he's saying, the things I've asked you to do for me, you're holding on tight to them. You're sticking in there. Even in a place where Satan dwells, you are hanging on tight. Now, he says, even in the days, and now we start with this historical record. He's laying out a time frame. And this time frame is in even in the days of Antipas, who was my faithful martyr. And here we have that word martus just kind of transliterated and not translated. They've transliterated it and in our thoughts that comes down today as someone who died for a cause, right? A martyr died for a cause. But at first it's evolved to that. But what it first meant was a witness. And some of the translations do translate it as witness. But a witness... Then, as now, meant just like whenever you are being sworn in on that seat, and they say, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Now you can be a witness for whoever. And he says, he was my faithful witness. He told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for his Savior To Antipas, there was nothing that was more important to him and his life than Bible doctrine. He spent time in study and prayer. His spirit was so saturated with the word that it exuded forth in his life. I like to say that his body, his soul was so filled with the word of God and praising him that if a skeeter bit him, he'd be flying away singing, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. God's word was the light to his feet and the lamp unto his path. He was walking in the light as God is in the light and having fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ was continually cleansing him from all of his sins and uncleanliness. And soon, the word of God... Its promises, its precepts, everything that it contained became so real to him that he could persevere through anything. And by the way, I hope you're taking notes because this is the way to the abundant life. This example right here. Fellowship with the Word and with Jesus daily. It meant more to him than anything itself. These promises became real. And now he knew that in any situation, in any time, under any circumstance, my circumstances are not going to dictate how I feel and what emotion I'm in. But I can trust that God is going to handle anything. If he's got me here, I'm where he wanted me to be. And he's going to bring me through whatever it is. He, like Paul, 
began to have joy and peace through his life. And he said, I am crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And now the life that I live in my flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me and died for me. Now, this life began displaying confidence. It began displaying this to those who were around about in Pergamos. He was being faithful to the word of God. And now, he started proclaiming that word to the people. He became their minister, their pastor. And he began teaching like Paul did, that the word of God is the dynamite. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And he began teaching that right here in Pergamos, where Satan's throne was. He led people to the truth. Look again there at verse 13. The people were still being faithful. They were not denying his word or his truth because of this strong witness of Antipas, it says, who was murdered. Right there in your midst, right before you where Satan dwells. And this again is God's way of setting up a historical reference that you can go back and check. He is laying right in place a time period that you can check what happened. And the life and the teaching of Antipas, the first witness that he had was with himself. And getting himself prepared and his walk of life became a witness for God before all. The next thing was his witness was teaching that word to all of the folks that would gather together to listen to the words of life that you just said. He would break open the words of life to the people and began telling them that there is a new way. We are here in a place that seeks after all of these other gods and all of these other pleasures and things. But true happiness and true wellness will be found In Jesus Christ. And he was preaching that to the people. He said. The truth is. Not Zeus. Not Escalapus. Not Athena. Not any of these. There are no gods that are made with hands. But there is a God of heaven. And with boldness. He would teach that message. And he started having success. And that's where the problem set in. People started leaving the temples of Zeus and Escalapus, and Athena, and started assembling to a little place called the church at Pergamos. And that began to anger the devil, our adversary. Because God's word should not be flourishing in my domain, he said. This is the center of demon worship. And it was embarrassing to him to see that God's word was having an effect upon his disciples and leading them back to God. Right there in his power center. But this man had stepped now into Satan's Colosseum. And he stepped onto the floor of the arena for a battle. And he threw down a gauntlet. The gladiator of God was now teaching the truth. Right under the nose of Satan himself. And he was being successful at it. So Satan chose Antipas to be his target personally. To go after him. And you say. How do I know that? Well look again at verse 13. God brackets Antipas with Satan and Satan. Right there. He was faithful. He was murdered. 
where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. Satan made it personal with him. If I can break the back of this movement of God, I must go to this one who is being successful on teaching it. I must knock off the head and the body will die. If I kill the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. That was what he thought. And so he made it a personal challenge to go after him. Now, with this, Jesus is making it known to us that our battle, folks, is not with flesh and blood, but it's with principalities and powers, that this is a spiritual warfare that we are in at all the time. And we learn something else here with Antipas as well. We learn that most of the time, for God's people, God places a hedge of protection around you. He only allows things to move so far unless you choose to make it otherwise. He places that protection around them to protect from the full onslaught of Satan. You remember Job. Whenever God said, have you saw my servant Job? What did he say to him in Job 1 and verse 10? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. So you can see that God has a hedge of protection that is there that filters things out. I can't touch him, he said. Because you won't let me. But every once in a while. Like with Job. And like with Antipas. God comes across somebody that he knows. That can handle. The excruciating pain. The torture. And maybe even unto death. And will glorify him. More through what he goes through than he could ever do with just the abundance of his life. And when that happens and God knows the character of that person. Sometimes God allows things to happen so he can be blessed through it. And so it is with a great compliment that God pays to Antipas right here. When he looks down and he says to the devil, you want him? You say he's having success in your community, then you got him. The hedge is lifted. Go after him. See if you can crack him. So God's gladiator now enters into the Colosseum against the ruler of this world who wanted to take his throne back and reclaim Pergamos for himself. And the gladiator went into battle only with the armor that his God had given and prepared to him. The battle armor looked like this from Ephesians chapter 6. I know you can't read that little stuff, but I like that picture. Gird yourself around the waist with truth. Nothing. Nothing, folks. Write it down. Is more important in your battle than the Word of God. Put upon your heart a breastplate of righteousness, and that means to take Christ's blood with you. We're only righteous through Him. We are not righteous of ourselves. So take His blood upon you as you enter into the battle. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. Wow, there's some more of the word, isn't it? 
Above all, take your shield of faith. Again, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. So take your shield of faith, the Word of God, that quenches the fiery darts of the wicked one. Put upon your head the helmet of salvation. You know what that means? Helmet of salvation, salvation. The head is the most vulnerable part of the body. If I'm in this battle, and if I would take a hit there, and something happened, I'm promoted to eternal life. Take that helmet of salvation so you can be courageous in the battle because if something happens, you're going to be promoted. Take courage. Put it upon your head. Take with you the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You getting the picture yet? The Word of God. The Word of God. Why is it mentioned in all of these different pieces of armor? Because the Word of God has categories and it has different things for your life. And that's why we need to have the whole counsel of God. Because some of it tells you about why you're righteous. Some of it protects your head. Some of it is like a shield. And some of it is like a sword that can be used as a weapon. The Word of God can be used in so many different ways. But you have to know it to use it. And you have to have all these categories. So he took upon him the armor of God. He was immersed, he was prepared. And he went into the Colosseum, in the arena, and as he stepped in on the other side, you've seen the movies. The cage door comes open, and his adversary, the devil, steps out and comes after him. And I want you to know that trying to reclaim his city, that he threw everything that he had at Antipas, every form of wickedness and evil that he could design since God had opened up the hedge, he was going to take advantage of the opportunity and he was going to go after him. And since Satan was granted permission, he began assembling his troops together, the priests of the temple of Zeus and the priests of the temple of of Asclepius, and he set them at odds against the church and against Antipas. And let me tell you about that epic battle and what happened, as recorded by historians throughout the church history of that time. They used the law of the failure to bend the knee to Caesar against him and started chastening him with that. And we said that they had the right of death in our first lesson, one of the few places that had the right to do that themselves. So they went after him as a traitor and they sentenced him to the most brutal and heinous sacrificial way of death as an offering to Satan that they could. For you see upon that altar of Zeus that we saw last week that looked like his throne, they placed a bronze bull, one of their idols that they had to them. This one represents power and authority. It's the bull. It was big It was brass and it was hollow. And they put that up on the altar. And then here's what they would like to do. They would place that up there and they would bring the person in. And usually the person would be screaming and begging and crying for mercy and asking not to be put there. And with glee the people 
of the temple of Zeus and Aesculapius and Athena would be down there dancing and shouting and going forth as they would bring these frenzied people in to put them in. A lot of times they had to bind them hand and foot and put them in and they would close the hatch of that bull and then they would pile wood up underneath of it and light it on fire and they would stand back with glee and watch what was going on and they would gather around and they would be shouting and they would be praising their God and the victory that they were having right here as they would sacrifice these people to the demons. And as the one inside would be begging and screaming for mercy, it would resonate inside of that hollow bull because it was hollowed out all the way through the head and out the nose. And those screams would resonate and it would make the bull sound fierce and sound like he was alive and it would excite them and they took some kind of hideous glee out of all of that. But then it changed whenever the fire began heating it up. Now it began screams of pain and anguish and get me out of here. And then on the inside, since the body is made up mostly of water, steam would start to develop as the body was disintegrating and being heated up to points of the death and afterwards and the steam would come out the bull's nose like he was ferocious in wintertime and snorting. And it would excite them all the more. But that wasn't the case with Antipas. With Antipas, something was different. He didn't fight. He didn't scream. He didn't yell. They put him in, shut it. But you know what? They just couldn't really get into it because he wasn't going on with their show. He wasn't acting the way that he was supposed to act. He went calmly. And things began to quiet down. And it became so quiet that I can hear the projector. And they could hear something on the inside of that bull. And as they listened and leaned up closer, you know what they heard? Prayers. They heard prayers. And Antipas, it is recorded, was praying for the people, the priests of Zeus, the priests of Aesculapius, all the people that was gathered around there together to have him murdered, he was praying for them and they could hear it. One of the hardest passages in the Word of God for me, I've told you as I've taught things that maybe you've not liked that well and and rubs against you, there's things that rub against me as well. One of them is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. Jesus said this, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And I say, how? How can I do that? People who are talking about me and lying about me and using me and trying to hurt me and you're saying love them, pray for them and help them. How do you do that? Jesus said, I did. Look at my faithful witness. Look at my faithful one, Antipas. He began praying for those who were persecuting him and using him and were his enemies. And as 
He was praying and they leaned closer. The buzz began to spread through the crowd of what was happening. And they couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, things changed. His witness became so great in his death, it was so much more than he had ever been doing in his life. And Satan again was hung on his own gallows because he, didn't, he had underestimated the man of God that was filled with the Word of God. And this man that was filled with the Word of God who knew that I can handle any situation through Christ who strengthens me, handled this way in such a glorious way that his death was so much more glorious for God than his life could have ever been. And instead of breaking the back of the church in Pergamos, it was strong there that day in the days that Jesus was writing this to them because he says, you are still faithful because of the witness of my faithful servant Antipas. And you saw that. And now you have the strength and the courage to know that you even have a faith that death is nothing and victory is yours that overcomes the world. And this is a historical reference of what happened. Antipas is my faithful witness. This is a monument, a standing stone that God gave to a man that not only impacted that town, but impacts lives today as we read it 2,000 years later. And it's there so that we can learn the Bible doctrine and the armor of God carries you through any situation of life. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything to protect you against the wiles of Satan. So as our worship team comes on back, Pergamos, mixed. This week was the example of Antipas. Next week we want to talk a little bit about Balaam and what a Nicolaitan is, and then we're going to get to the rewards. We're going to get to that hidden manna and what that means for you and I and about that white stone with a new name written on it. That's the other side that we're going to find out here in just a couple of weeks to let you know where we're going. Let's pray. Oh, Father. What a wonderful worship that was led to you to prepare our minds for your word. And Father, today as we opened up your word and and really explored it, and saw what it means to be faithful sometimes. And I say, man, I'm not worthy. I, I'm so thankful that we live in a different time and region. But you know what? We're still, we're still attacked every day. And we need your armor, Father. And we need your word. And we pray that you will strengthen us. That you will guide us. That you will allow us to be able to understand your word, its truths. We hope that it will become real to us. So real that we don't allow circumstances of life to dictate how we feel and how we are, but we allow you and your Son and your Word and your Spirit to direct our steps and be that light to our path, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.